Um, I'm a judge from the Eastern District of Michigan, a federal judge. And today's, uh, this afternoon's uh, topic is going to be an originalist judge in the media. We have uh, with us this afternoon is Justice Stephen Markman, a very distinguished state uh, justice here in Michigan. We also have Mr. Uh, professor Richard Primus, uh, who's a pr professor here at the University of Michigan Law School. He teaches constitutional law. And I'm sure several of you uh, have had him as an instructor in, in your con law class. And finally, uh, we have uh, with us Mr. Pete Williams from NBC News, who's one of the top journalists in the country. Uh, he has an excellent reputation for for being fair and, and um, objective in his reporting. So we're going to start with our discussion right now, and our first speaker is going to be Justice Markman. Uh, Justice Markman has served as a Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court since 1999. Prior to that, he was the United States Attorney in Michigan for the Eastern District of Michigan, having been nominated to that position by the first President Bush. And before that, he was an Assistant Attorney General of the United States, having been nominated to that position uh, by President Reagan. In that position, he headed the Department's Ju Department of Justice Office of Legal Policy, which served as the principal policy development office within the department and which coordinated the federal judicial selection process. Prior to that, uh, he served as general counsel to the United States uh, Senate Subcommittee on the Constitution and as Deputy Chief Counsel of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee for uh, seven years. And what many of you don't know is that Justice Markman is one of the founders, one of the original group of young lawyers that got together and started the Federal Society. So with that, um, Justice Markman. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Uh, you know, I awoke with a start this morning when I recalled the gist of my remarks today, and there was something about barrelfuls of ink uh, dancing in my head, and I was quite uh, perplexed how the Federalist Society managed to persuade me to talk about this subject today. The truth is I'm in the same situation as um, Justice Brennan was many years ago, when he was first identified as a comer for the United States Supreme Court uh, on behalf of a speech that he delivered at an American Bar Association convention that was witnessed by the Attorney General for the Eisenhower Administration, Herbert Brownell. Um, Brownell was very impressed by this speech. The only problem was that um, Brennan was reading the speech on behalf of a colleague from New Jersey, uh, a colleague on the New Jersey Supreme Court who was ill that day. So I hope you appreciate that my remarks also, although they appear to come from my mouth, are actually those of a colleague of mine on the, on the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, I hope the media appreciates that fact. Uh, the national debate over the role of the judiciary has been a particularly intense one in Michigan for the past decade, uh, with four of its seven justices committed to a traditional jurisprudence uh, in which it's the responsibility of the courts to say what the law is rather than what it ought to be, there is, I believe, no state judiciary in which this debate has been more directly engaged than in Michigan. This is reflected by opinions containing strong responses to dissents in which issues of jurisprudence are central, 
It's reflected by opinions that accord careful attention to a broad range of jurisprudential issues, such as the merits of an absurd results rule, the uses and abuses of legislative history, the hazards of premature invocations of ambiguity, and the propriety of broad and narrow interpretations of the law. And it is also reflected by some of the most costly and contentious judicial elections in our nation's history. What most obviously distinguishes the judicial debate within Michigan and increasingly within other states from that within the federal judiciary is, of course, the reality of periodic election. While this reality should properly have no impact upon judicial analysis or the substantive results of decisions, it does, as a practical matter, impose some greater obligation, I believe, upon state judges to identify their premises and their first principles as clearly as possible so that the people can understand judges' attitudes toward the exercise of the judicial power. For as it becomes increasingly evident that judges are not fungible and that differences among them are of consequences for the public policies and the legal cultures of their states, it becomes increasingly important that the elected judge communicate clearly the judicial values that underlie his or her decisions. After all, the people are entitled to know that Judge Scalia and Judge Breyer, for example, are competing for a position on the circuit court in Washtenaw County, for example. And a second reality of the state judicial process is, of course, that the media plays a critical role in transmitting these communications from judges to the people. Based upon my observations as a justice for the past nine years, I believe this intermediary role poses a particular problem for judges committed to a traditional judicial philosophy, call this interpretivism or textualism or originalism. On a significant number of occasions, the interpretivist majority on my court has been characterized by the media as partisan, beholden to interest, or engaged in myriad other forms of questionable decision-making, in my judgment, because of its quite unremitting commitment to reading the law as it stands. It is a court that refuses to avail itself of opportunities to improve or to enhance the law when invited to do so, and it is a court determined to respect legislative compromises that may have resulted in statutes that are less rational and less consistent and perhaps even less fair in some ways than could have been achieved doubtlessly by a judge unencumbered by the messiness of the democratic process. In other words, mine is a court that has eschewed the role of adult supervisor for our state and is held to the view that it is a function of our country's experiment in self-government that the people are entitled to enact laws that judges might view as unwise or imprudent so long as these laws do not contravene the Constitution. Let me briefly share several not altogether random thoughts on the media and interpretivism, recognizing that these are necessarily generalities and that one description does not necessarily fit all. Not altogether random thought number one. For interpretivists, the critical aspect of the judicial role consists of the means or the process by which decisions are reached, not their substantive results. 
the interpretivist is committed to a jurisprudence in which the judicial power must be exercised in accordance with our system of separated powers and in which it is the legislative power that generally determines substantive results and what the law ought to be. Understandably, however, the fine points of legal analysis are of considerably less interest to the media than the bottom line, who wins and who loses. What is newsworthy and of public interest is not the parsing of complex sentences, the location of commas, or the application of Latin maxims of interpretation, but rather the resolution of winners and losers. Thus, what is most important to the interpretivist, the assurance of even-handed decision-making affected through neutral rules by which laws are given meaning, are of relatively little interest to the media. By contrast, what is most important to the non-interpretivist, producing what they view as pleasant results, affecting social reform, enhancing the work product of the representative branches of government, and doing equity, are of considerable media interest. Not altogether random thought number two. The adverse impact of this media focus upon the interpretivist judge is reinforced because of what I believe is perhaps the single greatest virtue of interpretivism, namely that it establishes clear rules of decision-making in advance of the decision. That is, the rules of the game are set forth prior to the judge being confronted with interests and parties concerning which he may either have sympathies or predispositions. By the acceptance of these rules of interpretation, the interpretivist judge commits himself to rendering judgments based upon the language of a contract or statute or constitution and to reach judgments through the application of well-understood principles of construction. Thus, the interpretivist binds himself. He imposes constraints and limitations upon himself within which he will act and thereby serves as a custodian of a limited government. In the words of Franklin Roosevelt, such a judge acts under rather than over the law. Now, which judge is more likely to author opinions producing benevolent results in popular outcomes and media-friendly decisions? The judge who has bound himself by historical understandings of the judicial power and who views it as an imperative that he apply the same rules of interpretation today that he did yesterday, and who believes that the rule of law is principally a function of consistent decision-making, and who believes that a thumb is placed upon the scales of justice when the judge may either select from column A or column B of a Chinese menu of interpretative rules, or is the judge likely to produce these decisions who instead places a premium on achieving beneficent results and wise public policies, and who approaches each case relatively unfettered by any strongly felt need to apply the same tools of interpretation today he applied yesterday, and for whom innovativeness and creativity are greater judicial virtues than adherence to musty dictionary definitions and applications of the last antecedent rule, and who believes that our constitutional architecture must sometimes be allowed to breathe in order that the judicial branch not be deprived of its ability to substitute its judgments for those of our representative and accountable institutions. 
It doesn't, I would submit, take a rocket scientist to anticipate which of these judges' opinions will generally be found more amenable by the media. If the judge's starting point is that he is severely circumscribed in the range of his decision-making by the words of the law, quite assuredly, he will be deciding fewer cases in a manner applauded by the media than the judge whose starting point is to inquire as to the most provident outcome. Not altogether random thought number three. The media seems to have little patience with doctrines that it views as distracting from the achievement of substantive results. For example, the majority of my court, all of whom here are here at this conference, came in for almost unanimous media criticism when it called into question a state law authorizing any person to sue any person for the redress of a broad range of environmental harms. In reliance upon a United States Supreme Court decision, we invoked the doctrine of standing and concluded that the judicial power simply did not extend as a general matter to a lawsuit in which a plaintiff from Ann Arbor who had suffered no specific harm from the alleged pollutions of a defendant 500 miles away in the Upper Peninsula, but who was apparently dissatisfied with the executive branch's enforcement of the state's environmental laws, sought to sue such a defendant. We were scorned. Can't this court read? Any person can sue any person, and any person means any person. Well, although I admire this sudden outburst of interpretivist fervor within the media, <laughs> uh, our opinion hastened to remind the reader that it was also incumbent upon the court to read the Constitution at the same time that we read the statute, and that such Constitution, in our judgment, limited our authority to the exercise of the judicial power and that such power did not extend to matters in which plaintiffs lacked standing. To say the least, decisions and analyses focused upon standing and other preconditions to the exercise of the judicial power, to that is, to delineating how the separation of powers is going to be respected as a practical matter by the judiciary, do not always seem to impress many in the media, as much as decisions and analysis that cut through all this underbrush and enable judges to undertake for themselves as many of society's important decisions as possible. To put it another way, the more passive judicial virtues, restraint in judicial decision-making, deference to the determination of other institutions, respect for the limits of government, including the limits of the judicial role, seem to be less highly regarded by the media than those virtues that dictate action, getting things done in the judicial process, even if by creative and innovative methods, repairing the flaws and shortcomings and political decisions of the popular branches of government, not letting irritants and technicalities like standing and mootness and ripeness and, and political questions stand in the way of doing good things and doing them now. When, for example, I and my colleagues are accused of being a rubber stamp for the legislature, a recurrent term of criticism, a pejorative cast is essentially being placed upon a constitutional relationship that the founders viewed as essential to the achievement and maintenance of a free society. Not altogether random thought number four. 
Finally, the media simply fails too often, in my judgment, to distinguish between the judicial and the legislative roles. I can't count the number of times in which my court has been on the wrong end of media commentaries and analyses that have neglected even to mention that there were statutes or ordinances or contracts that were dispositive of a particular issue and that the judiciary simply does not possess carte blanche authority to achieve any particular result. Yet in a system in which judges are elected, as in Michigan, and, in, and as in virtually every other state, in which, and in which it is essential that the media must provide leadership in reminding the citizenry of first principles of civics and how the institutions of our system of government must interact and how each is bound by the Constitution, too often I would suggest this leadership hasn't been forthcoming. The adverse impact of this falls disproportionately upon the judge whose approach to his or her responsibilities is premised upon the binding nature of the law than it is upon his counterpart who effectively sees himself as having a, a shared legislative role. Moreover, the media understandably tends to focus upon outcomes in individual cases, the case that was decided yesterday, while failing to recognize that an appellate court particularly one such as the Michigan Supreme Court, whose docket is entirely discretionary, must attempt to identify for its consideration cases in which its decisions will control not only the instant case, but the resolution of 100 future cases as well. Thus, in those cases, it is the principle of law that is usually the most important aspect of, a, of an appellate opinion, a context that, off, that is often missing from media coverage. For it is this principle of law that must be applied equally to these succeeding 100 cases if the rule of law is to constitute something more than lip service. And once again, it seems to me that it is the interpretive as judge who is most conscious of his obligation to render decisions in the instant case, in the case today, that will have to be applied in a consistent fashion in these subsequent cases. The interpretivist too often will deal with those later cases as they arise. Let me conclude by observing that more often than not, the media does not set out to treat interpretivist judges unfairly. That's not my point. There is simply much that remains to be done by organizations such as the Federalist Society and by interpretivist judges themselves to more effectively communicate the nature and the stakes of the present national judicial debate. The extraordinary success of this society should not obscure the reality, however, that the dominant legal culture remains defined by a contrary point of view. And not surprisingly, this is reflected in the media. Thanks very much. Thank you, Justice Markman. Uh, next, we're going to have uh, some remarks from Professor Primus. Uh, Richard Primus practiced law in Washington, D.C. Uh, with the uh, law firm of Jenner and Block, and he has taught uh, constitutional law, as many, as many of you here are well aware, at the University of Michigan Law School since 2001. He has written about democratic theory, equal protection, federalism, and the relationship between history and the law. In 2007, uh, he 
wrote an article entitled Double Consciousness in Constitutional Adjudications, I'm sorry, which addresses the role of the public opinion uh, in constitutional law. And his forthcoming article is entitled When Should Original Meanings Matter, which will provide criteria for determining when reference to original meanings is or is not a good way to decide a legal question. Last year, the students here at the University of Michigan Law School awarded Professor Primus the Al Hart Wright Award for Excellence in Teaching. And this morning, uh, Professor Primus found out, learned that the Committee of Selection for the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation has selected him to be a Guggenheim Fellow, uh, subject to the formal, uh, formal approval of the trustees of the foundation. So with that uh, introduction... Professor. Thank you, Judge Cox, and thank you, Justice Markman, and thank you especially to uh, the members of the University of Michigan Law School Federalist Society, who not just who put on this conference, but who are constantly terrific interlocutors for me as I think about my own ideas in constitutional law. The ideas in the articles that Judge Cox mentioned are ideas that I have vetted with them. Uh, they wish to disclaim any responsibility for what I came up with, but I always enjoy working it through with them. So I'm not an expert on the media. Um, I watch a lot of South Park, <laughs> and I know which remote works the TiVo, but that's about it. So I'm going to stick to two things that I know a little bit more about. One is the relationship between the judicial branch and public opinion. The other is constitutional interpretation. So the judicial branch and public opinion first. Um, there's a lot of good data on this. In fact, those of you who are seriously interested in it, I would heartily commend to you a book that's coming out just this month. Um, by Nate Persley and Jack Citrin and Pat Egan. It's called Public Opinion and Constitutional Controversy. It richly and rigorously documents wonderful stuff on this, um, some of which has been kicking around and known for a little while, but in including the following two critical points of departure. One, when asked, members of the American public overwhelmingly say that judges should follow the original meaning and the text and nothing else. So Justice Markman should take comfort from this, right? The second is that public approval of courts and judges, when you ask them that, is driven almost entirely by the results that courts reach in a small number of high-profile cases and has no connection whatsoever to the way, the reasoning by which the judges got there. Um, almost entirely doesn't mean some of it is based on the reasoning. It means some of it is based on ethics scandals. Um, but basically, it's the results, and the results in a few cases. Um, and the public simply does not resolve the contradiction in its collective mind between wanting this method and these results. Now, before we judge the public too harshly for this, we ought to concede um, that most academic professionals and most professional judges are prone to the same problem, right? Um, that is, so for example, uh, my one-time teacher, Jack Balkin, at whose feet I learned the law of the First Amendment and whom I respect greatly, is of the view that he is an originalist 
and the original meaning of the Constitution establishes an individual right to have an abortion. He likes his theory and his result. I can't get from one to the other. On the other side of the political ledger, many justices of the present United States Supreme Court say that they are originalists, and they say that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment establishes a rule of colorblindness under which affirmative action is unconstitutional, which is extremely hard to reconcile with the history of the 1860s in which the framers of the 14th Amendment also operated race-conscious programs that would today be called affirmative action. Again, a theory and a result and no clear thing that gets you from one to the next. So the public does criticize judges based on results, irrespective of legal reasons, just as Justice Markman says. Um, Here I want to say that it's unclear that there is more criticism of justices with particular jurisprudential views, whether Justice Markman's or any others, than judges who have any other uh, set of jurisprudential views. And in fact, it would have to be that way if approval is based on results. I suppose if you had a theory that systematically produced terrible results that the public hated, you would get more criticism that way. Um, My guess is that each judge believes that his kind of judge gets more incoming fire than the other kind of judge. Um, And the reason for this is simply that judges are people. Uh, They suffer from, as we all do, selection bias, right? The criticism of me is more salient and more memorable than the criticism of the other guy. Um, Also, the criticism of me is more likely to be unjustified than the criticism of the other guy. So now here's the good news for Justice Markman. Whatever the public criticism of him or any of his colleagues, it, it doesn't matter so much, or at least it doesn't matter very much electorally. And the reason is that even here in Michigan, the public doesn't care very much. I mean, I I care, but I'm quite weird in this respect, right? You are also, you're with me, right? You are the weird people. The data tell us that depending on the survey in the year, 10 to 15% of American adults can identify the Chief Justice of the United States. There's no really good data on the name recognition of the justices of the Michigan Supreme Court it's probably not so much higher, right? We can make inferences, right? Um, It is true that the justices of the Michigan Supreme Court have to stand for re-election, but they're always re-elected, right? Incumbents are reliably re-elected. They're put on our ballot, and the Michigan Constitution requires this. They're put on our ballot without partisan affiliations identified. the way they came out in high-profile cases is also not identified. The only identifying information is the word incumbent, which either appears or doesn't appear. Reliably, incumbents are re-elected by pretty comfortable margins. Um, you might worry that this would change one day if, in fact, because if not a lot of people vote in these elections because they don't really care, and there was an organized drive, then people could be educated into uh, not electing the incumbent if they didn't like him. But the thing is that the elections are generally held in even-numbered years. And here in Michigan, if there isn't a presidential election, there's a gubernatorial election in an even-numbered year. So millions of people vote in these elections, um, 90% of whom don't know who the justices are when they come in, and don't remember them 36 hours later either, and the incumbents are reliably reelected. Now, this means that our concern for the justices is not actually about the fact that they stand in peril of their office by being criticized for their results. Um, 
it's more like sympathy that we might have for people who live through the Michigan winter, right? That is to say, you experience the criticism and it's public and it's unpleasant, right? It's also entirely predictable and it comes with the territory and it's always going to be that way, right? It is quixotic to imagine a public that votes on the basis of whether justices actually carry through their particular legal theories or on the basis of whether one legal theory is actually the right legal theory and the other the wrong one. Assuming the range of disagreement that we have and not a crazy, crazy, crazy legal theory like all cases shall be decided in favor of the plaintiff, that might be a limiting case. So there is some kind of personal affront that you feel when you've been criticized, especially if it's public and especially if you feel it's unjustified. But it kind of comes with the territory and there's no reason in worrying that you're going to lose your office based on it. So that's about judges and public opinion. Now, constitutional interpretation, which here means the theory of legal decision-making in constitutional cases. So what is Justice Markman's theory? Well, his title and his most common name for his theory uh, is originalism, right? an originalist judge and the media. He also, in the course of his remarks, calls the jurisprudence traditional or textualist or interpretivist. And he tells us a couple of its important characteristics. It is about what the law is and not what the law ought to be. Its greatest virtue is that it establishes clear rules of decision making in advance of the decision. Now, one problem with this jurisprudence is that it does not exist. People once talked as if it did, right? This is the originalism of Bork and Berger as it existed in the 1970s. Um, it is the originalism of Bork and Berger before the Federalist Society, right? And before the increase in sophistication among many conservative legal thinkers that has led them quite correctly to understand that the bundle of commitments that go in originalist, traditional, textualist, interpretivist, what the law is and clear rules of decision making usually pull in directions that are opposite each other, and it's very hard to have them all at the same time. So, for example, originalist judging is not traditional. It is neither traditional nor, tradi nor traditionalist, right? The most traditional judging in American law is common law judging. Um, uh, and the poster boy among originalists for this recognition is, of course, Justice Scalia, who has clearly and correctly articulated that the problem for originalist judges is to overcome our traditional habits of common law judging in which the judge is partly a policymaker and not just the agent of a legislature. Um, the common law for originalists like Scalia is precisely the foil for originalism and it is the most traditional kind of judging in our system. Originalism may be a better theory of judging and for some kinds of law it probably is a better kind of judging but it's hard to call it traditional. It's also not traditionalist, right? That is to say, traditionalism is about doing what we did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. Originalism is about going back to time zero, whatever time zero is, throwing out as much as necessary the detritus, the error that has accumulated between now and then, and restoring something. That's not tradition. It goes by various other names depending on whether you want to be pejorative or approbative of it, right? Restoration, uh, uh, reaction, uh, archaeology. Uh, you can call it many things, and sometimes it might make sense. It's not traditionalism. Originalism is not a good strategy for constraining judicial discretion. Um, sophisticated originalists don't make this argument anymore, 
right? Um, first, um, Keith Whittington walked into the room a couple of minutes ago. And um, uh, Keith is one of the most sophisticated originalists of his generation. Um, and he makes the following uh, unassailably good point, right? He says, any theory of judging constraints, as long as you follow it, right? Um, that can't be unique to originalism. And, and Keith, for his part, therefore, doesn't rely on the constraint rationales from originalism in the way that the 1970s originalists do. The second, so then the next question is, well, does this theory constrain better or worse? Does it reduce judicial discretion or does it keep judges from being policymakers better or worse than some other theory? Um, and here, I mean, I guess the, the best spokesman uh, uh, in this room for this position would be Tom Merrill. Um, uh, Tom Merrill has pointed out that originalism constrains very poorly relative to uh, other known technologies of judging, like following doctrine and precedent, and asking, well, how did we do this last time? Um, here are, so that is to say, in, in, in his very apt phrase, uh, originalism is Borkian, uh, but constraint is Burkean. And those are very, very, very different things. You can further see this through a couple of thought experiments, right? Think about what it would mean for uh, originalism to be constraining. Go read a historical record and ask yourself, if you want to test whether it constrains, could you read it to support more than one conclusion? Then imagine the other guy who disagrees with you about the merits of this case and ask if he can or will read it to support another conclusion. Or imagine that you arrive at a law school exam and the question is, decide this case solely by reference to original meanings. How are you going to do that in a way that you are confident is going to get the result that the person who wrote the test thought you were going to get? Are you more or less confident in your ability to do that or in your ability to reproduce the doctrine and get to the result that the person who wrote the test thought he was going to get? If you're at all unsure, you might consider this fact. Um, in the federal courts of appeals, uh, on three judge panels, Almost all decisions are made entirely on the basis of precedent and doctrine. They are overwhelmingly unanimous. So if we're going to be originalists, it's got to be for some other reason than this one, right? And sophisticated originalists offer a few, right? Justice Scalia um, and also to some extent Professor Whittington uh, offer the idea of democratic decision making. Um, uh, Professor Balkan offers the idea that talking like originalists binds us into one national community. Uh, originalists like Randy Barnett say it would be good if we were libertarians. And it's a happy thing about being originalist about our Constitution, as he reads it, that it would make us libertarians. So these various ideas for what originalism might be good for have their strengths and weaknesses. And you've got to evaluate whether to be originalist on the basis of the strengths or weaknesses that the method actually has. And last... The alternative to originalism isn't just making up with the law what you think the law should be, right? The common law, for example. Common law judges aren't just making things up. They've certainly never understood themselves that way. They're reasoning based on principles that are in the law as they understand it. Even avowedly anti-positivist Dworkinians understand themselves to be giving an account of what the law is, not what the law should be. They have a different view of what the correct inputs into the law are, right? They think they might include norms, right? But they think that those things are in the law, not that they're making them up. Or in other words, there are no non-interpretivists, 
right? We don't speak of interpretivists and non-interpretivists anymore. We haven't really since the 70s. The, the last important sighting of a non-interpretivist judge was when Ely attributed the label to Tom Gray in 1980. Um, uh, and Ely already identified Earl Warren as his hero. So if Warren is in the paradigm of the interpretivists, it's difficult to know who's on the other side. Now, the 1970s originalists who thought that originalism would give them determinate law and constraint and so forth weren't stupid. They were actually quite smart people, most of them. But they were too upset, and they hadn't worked through yet the implications of their theory. Right? They were cranking on a theory that began, this is an oversimplification, but that got legs out of serious revulsion at the decisions like Brown versus Board of Education in the 50s and Reynolds versus Sims, the one man, one vote decision, and then Miranda versus Arizona in the 70s, excuse me, in the 60s, about which people had a list of complaints. And they said, this is not the original intention and this is not the text and this is judges making things up and very, they hated these decisions. Bork articulated his response before Roe, and when Bork wrote and Roe came next, Berger was not far behind. They had lots and lots of complaints about these decisions, but they were too close to them and very, very angry, and angry is not good for reflection and nuance and self-critical theorizing. They hadn't yet worked out a reasoned alternative. Now, I happen to think that originalism can be a good interpretive method for deciding state constitutional cases under the constitutional law of Michigan, a lot of the time. Um, I think that one good argument that works in that situation is about the democratic authority of the Michigan Constitution. The democratic authority for originalism is good where it works. And it, to work, it has to have the following conditions be true. The Constitution has to be recent enough, that's one, and revisable enough, that's two, that you don't have a dead hand problem. And here in Michigan, we're okay, right? We have a recent constitution. It's revisable on majority vote. We don't really have a dead hand problem. And the third is about indeterminacy. You have to know what the Michigan ratifiers thought. That's often not possible. And then originalism wouldn't constrain. Maybe sometimes it is possible. So for example, if I were a Michigan judge and I had to decide a case under the part of the Michigan constitution that was passed as the Michigan Civil Rights Initiative, the anti-affirmative action ballot measure, I would say, look, um, I think this is bad policy, and I think it's not required by justice, and I think it makes our state worse, but it's clearly the law. And I have a sense over some domains of its original understanding, and I would consider it my obligation to enforce it according to that understanding. One question to ask to, the, to an originalist judge, Judge Markman or otherwise, is which are the constitutional choices under your constitution that you would identify that you think are really bad choices that your constitution makes you enforce? And this brings us to the question of how Justice Markham says he applies his originalism. And I'll just take his own example of standing in an environmental case. He says that his court was subject to the complaint. Can't the court read any person means any person? And I have a lot of sympathy for Justice Markman here because I think that, uh, you know, speaking off the cuff about it, that he was probably right to decide the case the way he did on the standing ground. And Justice Markman says, of course I can read any person, but I read the Constitution too. Okay, what did he read? Article 6 of the Constitution, the Michigan Constitution, doesn't say anything about standing. It says that judicial power is vested in his court. You could read the words judicial power a lot of times and not come up with a particular doctrine of standing that decided this case. It may be a good doctrine of standing, but it's not in the text. 
it's also hard to figure out how it's originalist, right? The argument of the court in the case is Michigan separation of powers is like federal separation of powers. Federal separation of powers has certain requirements about standing. And to work out what the federal requirements about standing are, there's discussion of a bunch of cases decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, like Allen and Lujan and Plout. And the court applies these precedents with, I will stipulate, impeccable competence. But what would Justice Markman have to be saying to call this process of reasoning originalist? Well, here's one possibility. The ratifiers of the Michigan Constitution in 1963 understood themselves to be adopting standing requirements that the United States Supreme Court would articulate for the federal constitution between 1984 and 1996. Possibility two. The ratifiers of the Michigan Constitution in 1963 understood themselves to be adopting the correct original understanding of the federal separation of powers, even though the federal courts in 1963 had a different understanding, and it's not clear why we think that the Michigan public was independently expert in the federal separation of powers. Three, maybe it's that the Michigan ratifiers had a general sense about the separation of powers, and they intended to peg the specifics of the Michigan separation of powers to the developing understanding of the separation of powers among federal judges in the future. Now, I doubt that the Michigan public had that idea in mind. But at the very least, it isn't obvious that they had that idea in mind, and the court needs to supply some history demonstrating that they did have that in mind. Um, Without that, you don't have the democratic authority of originalism. Instead of the history, they cite a prior Michigan court that says the Michigan separation of powers is like the federal separation of powers. Well, maybe that's a good understanding of the separation of powers, but it's just a bunch of judges applying doctrine. Now, I have a lot of sympathy for Justice Markman in choosing to decide the case this way. I think it's the right way to decide the case, right? It's very hard to figure out what the public of Michigan of 1963 thought about what federal judges in the 1990s would think about what Americans in the 1780s thought about who had standing to sue under environmental law statutes. If the goal is to have a clear rule, it's much easier to follow what judges have said than to work out all that history and attribute a meaning to it. But then why add the part where you pretend that this is originalism? Right? And I mean to ask that last question seriously. So let's try to answer it and then I'll be done. What do you get out of claiming that this is originalism? Well, one, you get to mimic the U.S. Supreme Court. That's probably fun. Two, you get to commune with James Madison, and that's probably fun. Three, you get to tell the public that you just follow original meanings. And as we know from the data, that's very popular, regardless of what you then actually decide. Four, you get to duck responsibility for having made a decision about how the separation of powers should work in Michigan. I think I agree with the decision that Justice Markman made. I just wish he'd cop to making it. And saying, I go with the doctrine, is a form of making the decision. Of course, making the decision and copping to it might open him to public criticism on the merits. And, to, and that includes criticism that he will regard as unjustified and unpleasant. But it seems to me that that comes with the territory of being an elected official. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Our next speaker will be uh, Mr. Pete Williams. Uh, Pete Williams has covered the Justice Department and the United States Supreme Court for NBC News since 1993 as a correspondent based in, Was as a correspondent based in Washington, D.C. 
He's also covered the Department of Homeland Security since its creation after September 11, 2001. Among the stories he has reported on are the Aldrich Ames case, the Robert Hansen spy case, the Unabomber investigation, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Olympic bombing, a lot of bombings there, uh, <laughs> and the search for Eric Rudolph, the Clinton impeachment proceedings, the legal, the legal wrangling over the Florida election results, and the uh, federal government's massive investigation following the September 11 terror attacks. Uh, significantly, uh, Mr. Williams is a recipient of a National News Emmy Award and is, again, very significantly, a three-time Emmy nominee. He's now the senior telvo television correspondent at the Supreme Court. He is a native of Casper, Wyoming, and a 1974 graduate of Stanford University. Uh, Pete was a reporter and the news director at KTWO uh, Radio and Television in Casper from 1974 through 1985. Working with the Radio, Tele Radio Television News Directors Association, which he served as a member of its board of directors, he successfully lobbied the Wyoming Supreme Court to permit broadcast coverage of its proceedings. And twice he sued Wyoming judges over, of course, judges don't like that, uh, over pretrial exclusion of reporters from the courtroom. For these efforts, he received a First Amendment award from the Society of Professional Journalists. And what I didn't know, and I think it's very, rather interesting, he came to Washington in 1986 to join the staff of then-Congressman Dick Cheney of Wyoming and well, as a legislative assistant and then later his press secretary. In 1989, uh, when uh, Vice President Cheney was named Secretary of Defense, Mr. Williams was appointed Assistant Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs. And, of course, during the Persian Gulf War, we remember his reports um, as the progress of the troops. Um, he has served, the, uh, again, as Pentagon spokesman, not only with respect to the uh, Persian Gulf War, uh, but also with military uh, operations in Pan Panama and Somalia. The National Association of Government Communicators named him as Communicator of the Year in 1991. So with that brief introduction, Mr. Williams. Thank you, Thank you. Good day, fellow weird people. Um, I uh, can understand after listening to you, Professor, why the students give you such high marks, uh, and um, I'm very upset about following you here, but I will plow on. Uh, by the way, there are plenty of seats down here. I realize that now that I'm speaking, many of you would like to be near the exits, but there are still some empty seats there. I think what, uh, much of what Justice Markman says is exactly right, and I also think that the reason for the problem he has sketched out is completely understandable. And I also think that there are steps that judges and their sympathetic supporters can take, and in fact, I will argue, should take to deal with it. Uh, there are several factors at play here. I think one of them is something Justice Markman can do nothing about. And you talked a little bit about this last night. That's the fact that most states elect at least some of their judges. And that inevitably invites politics and the attendant criticism into the third branch. 
Uh, this is the rundown, by the way, on the numbers. Seven states elect all their judges in partisan voting. That is, the candidates run as members of a political party. Six more states have partisan election for some of their judges. Thirteen states have nonpartisan elections for selecting all their judges. And seven more use them for selecting some of their judges. Added up, that's 30 states that choose either some, most, or all of their state court judges in contested elections. This is different from the alternate system that you use, we use in my state of Wyoming, which you mentioned, where judges are appointed by the governor and then they stand for retention. And all it says on the ballot is, shall Justice Markman be retained, yes or no, but they don't run against an opposing candidate. Now, many federal judges appointed for life think this system invites too much politics into a judge's chamber. Some of this criticism has to do with the need to raise money and put goofy little campaign ads on television. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with the attendant criticism that comes. And one former Supreme Court justice has mounted a campaign to end this practice based on her own personal experience. Sandra Day O'Connor was elected a trial judge in Arizona. She saw her state do away with elections when she was on the bench there, and she says she watched what she calls the improvement of the judiciary. A University of Chicago study out last year claimed that elected judges do not appear to be less independent than appointed judges, but then it said this, the results suggest that elected judges are more focused on providing service to the voters, that is, they behave like politicians, whereas appointed judges are more focused on their long-term legacy as creators of precedent, that is, they behave like professionals. My second point is that for reasons of simple human nature, and not exclusively the fault of journalists, most people would disagree with one of Justice Markman's statements, which was that for interpretivists, the critical thing about a decision is the process by which it is reached and not the result. I think it's fair to say that the parties in the case and their lawyers are more interested in the result than the process, and members of the public are no different. A case generates public interest for the most part because of what it's about because of the nature of the controversy. And people want to know who won or who lost. Does the highway get built or not? Uh, does the accused go to jail? Uh, do they keep counting the hanging chads in Florida? Or is the presidential election over? One of the subjects here at your gathering that you talked about today is the Supreme Court's eminent domain decision two years ago in the case of Kelo versus New London, Connecticut. And I dare say that the Federalist Society would not be as interested in the case if the decision had gone the other way, no matter how fascinating the jurisprudence was to get there. A journalist reporting on a high-profile court ruling would be in big trouble with his editors for turning in a story with a lead paragraph going something like this. The state Supreme Court relied on principles of stare decisis in deciding whether popular three-term governor John Doe must go to prison by next Monday. <laughs> There's a... Uh, a popular saying that in life, what's important is the journey, not the destination. But for the most part, just the opposite is true in reporting on court decisions. The destination is where the news is. But that does not relieve journalists of the obligation to report how a court found its way to the destination. In fact, the more controversial and important the case is, the more important it is for reporters to explain the court's reasoning. Now, while the logic a court uses to reach a decision is not as worthy as the outcome, it's definitely 
a good number two. And no account of a court ruling is complete without it. Any journalist who writes a story about a highly controversial and divisive case without including a clear account of the legal principles employed by the court is committing journalistic malpractice. So, what's Justice Markman to do? What is any judge to do when a news account flat out omits any reference to the judge's reasoning or even worse, screws it all up and gets it wrong? Well, let's begin where the Federalist Society often begins, by turning to the American Bar Association. Um, the, ABA, the ABA recommends that judges take their lumps and do nothing. Here's what the ABA says, quote, The reporting of inaccurate or unjust criticism of judges, courts, or our system of justice by the news media erodes public confidence and weakens the administration of justice, end quote. However, it also says it is undesirable for a judge to answer criticism of his or her own actions appearing in the news media. Now, why does the ABA say this? They explain a response by a judge to criticism may be perceived by the community as self-serving and or as a defensive position which fails for lack of credibility, end quote. And I wish I could write like that and or you got to love that. Um, the, uh, thank you very much, ma'am. The, uh, <laughs> the remedy that the ABA proposes is for the bar to speak up when journalistic outrages are committed. But to use a word from Professor Primus, this seems quixotic. It's probably of little or no use to interpretivist judges who probably won't find much sympathy from the often more liberal local bar association. I think the ABA is only half right when it says that judges should simply sit silently on their hands and watch their decisions get trashed. I think the part that's right is that judges, for the most part, should not issue public statements about how their decisions are reported or public refutations of what the news media are saying. But when the state's most prominent newspaper writes an editorial or a series of editorials criticizing a decision that either omits or misrepresents a court's reasoning that I think it's perfectly proper, indeed desirable, for a judge to reach out to that newspaper editor off the record and urge the editor to read the decision and at, very least, at the very least explain the reasoning. Now, the newspaper may continue to disagree with the outcome, but the judge can have no complaint if the paper faithfully reports the judge's legal reasoning. Now, I freely concede this is easier said than done, but most judges know newspaper editors or at least know a friendly journalist whom they can turn to. You have to be careful because you don't want to certainly pour gasoline on the flames by making comments that end up being public. But let me tell you, this happens all the time. And of course, where I live in Washington, it's an art form. Uh, judges can also employ what they call in the intelligence community a cutout. A judge can rely on somebody that the editor knows and have that person make the call. I think the point here is to let the news organization know when it has failed its readers and viewers, to put it on notice, but to do so, obviously, in a way that doesn't make things worse. One other point here. Many courts have public information officers, and this is one thing that PIOs do. If, 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 uh, if a PIO thinks that a news organization is inaccurately reporting a decision, the PIO can call up and say, hey, you know, give this another look. Now, you may wonder... Does a reporter want to hear from a judge when there's a mistake? I guarantee you I do, and I think most of my colleagues do. 
And it does happen that we get calls from judges. It doesn't happen often, and it doesn't happen often enough. Now, there's one other thing that judges do have control over, and that's how they write their decisions. While judges, especially at the appellate level, are writing mostly for the audience of other judges to guide the lower courts, they must also write for a lay audience and for the public that will read those decisions, and that's especially true for people like Justice Markman who are elected. The opinion itself must give a clear roadmap to how the decision is reached. Of course, it will still employ all the legal precedent, the case citations, the shorthand, and, of course, under Michigan law, interjections of Latin. But it should also include some good English prose, and it should be written so clearly that even a reporter can understand it. Thank you, Mr. Williams. That's excellent. All right. I know uh, the sessions. it's a little bit after 3 right now, and we're going to be going till 3.30. And I know uh, many of you have questions you want to ask, and I see Mr. Reardon's been writing out several questions during each of the speakers. Okay. <laughs> uh, but right now, uh, we're going to give uh, the speakers um, an opportunity for a few brief follow-up remarks. Uh, Justice Markman? Well, it will not. It will probably not come as a surprise to anybody that I don't agree with everything that my colleagues have said on the panel today in response to my comments. But let me just uh, emphasize two points, and, and these concern the theme or the subject matter of my presentation. Uh, with respect to Professor uh, Primus, and I appreciate uh, his very thoughtful remarks, um, I would emphasize that my, the point of my presentation was not to defend originalism or interpretivism, the latter actually being a term that I prefer, interpretivism, the one I repeatedly used during my remarks, but I accept either characterization. But the purpose of my remarks was not to defend or justify interpretivism. That'll wait for another day. It was simply to suggest that those people who adhere to that doctrine will generally find themselves and will generally find themselves handicapped in terms of their ability to go to the public um, in terms of um, uh, representing their position. It's not that interpretivism is a, a better way of, of looking at the law than non-interpretivism, although, of course, I happen to believe that it is. But again, the theme of my remarks is simply that adherence of that position will generally find the media more uncomprehending than will those individuals whose focus is upon the results or the... Um, uh, the um, the bottom line determination of winners and losers in their opinion. Now, Professor Primus can also quarrel with uh, the, the not only with the merits of interpretivism, but with the characterization, with the nomenclature of interpretivism. There's all sorts of reasonable bits of nomenclature that can be used to describe what I adhere to, what my colleagues adhere to, what those who disagree with me adhere to. But the point is, there is a great debate in this country. Now, you can characterize the debate as you will, and obviously Professor Primus sees it through, I think, a different prism than I do. You can characterize the debate as you will, but there is a debate. It's a debate reflected in Washington by the confirmation proceedings that we've seen in recent years. 
It's a debate reflected in Washington by the extraordinarily contentious U.S. Supreme Court nominations, and it's a debate that's reflected increasingly in the states by enormously expensive and contentious elections. Whatever you want to characterize this debate as involving, the people in that debate who adhere to my side of the debate are finding themselves, I believe, very much uh, impaired and handicapped in the public debate. You can characterize the debate as you will, but there is an impairment that's going on there. I think the word interpretivism is a fair description of the debate, interpretivism versus non-interpretivism. Those who quarrel with that nomenclature, that's fine, and I respect it. Uh, with respect to um, uh, Mr. Williams, um, my, my, my central theme is not to blame the media. Again, it's simply to note that interpretivists are disadvantaged in this debate. And I'd emphasize that that was the thrust of what I had to say. Interpretivists are impaired in this debate. Um, with respect to Professor Primus, it is correct that there haven't been any direct electoral consequences uh, to, to sitting Michigan Supreme Court justices in recent years. But again, that isn't my point. The debate is becoming a greater and greater debate. It's becoming a more divisive debate. And to the extent that debate in part is going to be interpreted by the media, I think it's of concern and consequence that the media misapprehends increasingly or disproportionately one side in that debate. And the fact that there have been no electoral consequences, again, is neither here nor there as far as I'm concerned. As the debate becomes an increasingly divisive debate, I think there will be consequences, and I think that people do need to understand what's at stake for their political system and their constitutional system in this debate. Finally, let me say, um, of course, Professor Primus is correct in many of his criticisms of interpretivism. Um, interpretivism is not a scientific theory. It's not a mechanical theory. It is a theory of engaging in a very imperfect process of interpreting the law. It is a difficult thing to engage in. Uh, although there are four members of my court who basically share the premises that I described today, the fact is we disagree with each other on many decisions. There is not necessarily a right and wrong answer. But the fact is, interpretivists bring to bear a common premise, a common starting principle, a common first understanding, and that's the critical point here. When you bring to bear a common a first principle, which is namely, how can I engage in the rough process of trying to determine what these words mean? These words in the contract, these words in the statute, these words in the Constitution. When that's the question you're asking, the disagreements are going to be far less consequential than when your initial question is, what's good public policy? What's wise law? And I think if you look at Justice Brennan's decisions in the capital punishment cases, if you look at Justice Marshall's decisions in the capital punishment cases, if you look at Justice Brennan's decisions in Weber in which he finds that the spirit of the law ought to trump the fact, uh, to trump the details of the, the, the text of the law, I think you're looking at something that's distinctly non-interpretivist. Call it what you will, though. I don't care. It's different than the philosophy 
that I described, which is, a, as Justice Primus recognizes, basically the philosophy that Justice Scalia or Justice Bork have described over the years. The fact is there is a debate, and that debate is reflected by the fact that there are recurrent majority opinions and recurrent dissents on my court by the same justices. It's reflected by a similar phenomenon in the United States Supreme Court. It's, phenomenon, it's reflected by the phenomenon of the debate that you can see in any law journal of the land and most relevant to state justices, it's reflected in the fact that we now have extraordinarily divisive campaigns for re-election that are enormously costly because there are disparate points of view, and these disparate points of view are increasingly being reflected in decisions going in different directions. Call the debate what you will, but there is such a debate, and I believe that those people who share the philosophy that I purport to adhere to are the ones most prejudiced in that debate. Uh, professor, any further remarks? Um, sure, just briefly. Briefly. I mean, uh, my point about interpretivism isn't that there's no such, isn't that uh, uh, there's, well, I'm an interpretivist. Pretty much everyone I know is, so my trouble is in figuring out the, what the, what's on the other side of the debate from interpretivism. Um, I know, I don't know a whole lot of judges who actually think that what they're supposed to do is say what's good public policy. And I note that um, uh, Brennan and Marshall, the two examples who uh, Justice Markman gives, have been dead for a long time. Uh, now, I think that arguments can be made that they, too, were doing what they understood as interpreting the law. But I don't think that it cuts against the idea that this view of what the art is at stake in this debate um, is essentially a product of the fights of the 70s uh, for one side of the debate to take as his punching bags people who were on the bench then and died between then and now. Um, on the question of the of the of the of whether interpretivists are handicapped, I, I, I plead my own ignorance. Right, that is to say, uh, I'm not an expert in the media. I've done no survey. I, I would be interested in data that showed that these judges or those judges are more often criticized. Uh, if I were guessing intuitively, I would say that among the most criticized state judges in the United States in the last several years are the Massachusetts judges who decided the gay marriage case. I don't know if Justice Markman wants to claim them for his side as, as the handicapped people. Um, and uh, there's a good common law principle that we don't let people be judges in their own cases. So I would want the data to come from somebody who wasn't a judge and didn't have a dog in the fight either way. Um, uh, and finally, on, uh, on the divisive and expensive uh, re-elections, I'm confident that Justice Markman lives in a, in a divisive world. I mean, he's on a divided court, and people experience these things quite intensely. I would just say that if the concern is about the direction we're going in judicial elections, I might be able to help by offering to manage Justice Markman's next re-election campaign and to deliver his office back to him at a fraction of the cost, because I just don't think he's in any danger. <laughs> All right. Um, charge. <laughs> want to <wanna> talk? <laughs> well, uh, I, I think uh, Justice uh, Taylor's out in the audience, and I think he's looking for a campaign manager since he's up for a re-election this year. Okay. Uh, we're going to take questions, and I guess the, what happens is that you line up at one of the microphones, and hopefully someone will, and uh, we'll, we'll alternate between uh, microphone to microphone. Now, we've got to have more in two. We've got about... 15 minutes to kill, so. All right. 
Uh, hi, my name is Daniel. I go to Market Law School. Uh, what do you think of the so-called greenhouse effect, the idea that conservative judges migrate to the left, hoping even subconsciously to please left-leaning reporters? Who wants to take It's a reference to Linda Greenhouse, who's the long-standing and soon-to-be-no-more Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times because she's taken a buyout, and this is her last term. Uh, it has amused me that uh, reporters often refer to whether a Supreme Court justice has evolved on the bench. This means that as they drift to the left, you know, it's sort of moving up the evolutionary scale. Um, and I, I, uh, I think that's a tendency that uh, perhaps Linda sometimes, whom I have enormous amount of respect for, uh, is a little bit guilty of. But it, the idea is that uh, it's chic to be praised by Linda Greenhouse or have her decisions written, uh, have your decisions written by Linda on the front page and you get invited to better parties. And uh, if there ever was a greenhouse effect, uh, I'm trying to think of the appropriate metaphor. The, the, the nominations and confirmations of Justices Roberts and Alito uh, have pulled the shades on it, as I guess the best I can do. Okay. Uh, Professor, would you, do you have a comment on the I, last I don't question? I don't know anything about the greenhouse effect. I would, oh, thank you very much. I don't know, I don't really don't have a view about that. I, I, I do know that um, one of the reasons that evolving on the Supreme Court tends to have that resonance is that in the last several decades, there are basically no examples of judges who move seriously to the right after they get on the court. I mean, you have to go back maybe to Felix Frankfurter. And so one possibility is there's something in the drinking water. Um, the other possibility is there are things that you see when you get there uh, that you didn't see before. Okay. Uh, Justice Markman? Okay. Next question. My name is Jeremy Robbins, and I go to the University of Audible School of Law. Um, my first question is for Justice Markman, and that is how do judges, both at the state level and federal level, deal with um, originalism in a modern context where you have activist precedent? Uh, starting with the Lochner era up on through the 60s and the civil rights cases? Well, I think that question really implicates the great challenge on the part of any purportedly interpretivist court such as mine, and that is how do you deal with such precedents? How do you balance the need in any judicial system to ensure stability and continuity of the law by respecting precedent while at the same time being faithful to your oath of office to say what the law accurately means. Uh, my court has issued some decisions in which we, we've attempted, albeit probably imperfectly, to establish standards, considerations, factors to weigh in that process. Um, but perhaps the, the most recurrent criticism of my court has been that we're too cavalier with precedents. Obviously, I don't agree with that, but um, I think an interpretivist court has got to grapple with the need to balance respect for those precedents, as any system of law does, with the need to respect the fact that their primary obligation, their principal duty, is to the language of the law, their oath is to the Constitution, and it's not to the decisions of their predecessor who served on the court 20 years earlier. So my court has attempted a rough balance in that realm, um, perhaps not a perfect balance, but I think a pretty responsible balance, and I think you really put your finger on what is the the first, uh, uh, the first issue that an interpretivist court has to grapple with, how are they going to balance uh, those uh, concurrent responsibilities? Professor, or Pete, you, oh, 
Okay. Thank you. May I ask a question of Mr. Williams? Sure. Uh, Mr. Williams, um, my wife, who's a journalist in Washington, D.C., often complains to me about uh, a slant that she sees either way within the reporting. And I was wondering if you could comment on the appropriateness of uh, reporters commenting on um, court precedent or court decisions, especially high-tension ones, given the need to uh, create stories that are both appealing to readers, viewers, or um, listeners, and at the same time uh, accurately representing the facts and circumstances of the case and the decision thereupon. Let me, if I may, cut your question in half. I, I don't see anything wrong with a journalist pointing out precedent or past decisions. In fact, it may be a very smart way to explain a decision by citing precedent, especially if that's what the court did. So I, know that, I don't know that necessarily talking about precedents or past decisions introduces bias. It may introduce clarity. As for the question of bias, um, I think there is bias in, uh, in news organizations, but my experience has been that it's, it's regional rather than ideological. Uh, I'm from the West, and you know we have a big gun control case coming before the Supreme Court in two weeks, uh, week, just a little over a week, the uh, question of the uh, Washington, D.C. gun ban, and it's going to require the Supreme Court for the first time in history to say what the Second Amendment means. Um, this is what reporters like me live for. <laughs> uh, I freely admit that we desperately hope courts of appeal take cases like these because they're just so much fun to report on. Uh, although, you know, it, I'm not to mention, not, I don't mean to slight in any way the ERISA cases, which are also fascinating in their own way. <laughs> but um, so, uh, so you, you know, you, you have a case like that, and, and I, I come to it from my Western heritage where Gun control is just sort of a commie plot when you're from Wyoming. Uh, and, and my, but most of my editors in New York, uh, many of them have never lived outside of an apartment building in a big city. And the idea that you need a lot of guns around just strikes them as kind of nutty. So that's what, that's what I deal with is these sort of ideological biases that are the result of sort of where you grew up and what your life experiences are. But I have to tell you, uh, in, in my 15 years of reporting on the Supreme Court for NBC, I have never once, ever, ever had an editor, a producer, a news director, a, a president of the news division say, you know, you're being a little too tough on Antonin Scalia. Or, you know, you need to say more nice things about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It just doesn't happen. All right, sir. Hi, my name is uh, Mark Adams from Marcat as well. Uh, Mr. Williams, first of all, thank you for coming. Uh, my question is a genuine a request for advice on your part. Um, since coming to law school, I think one of the things that's really struck me is, uh, or surprised me, is how unmedia savvy many in the legal profession are. Uh, they expect reporters to uh, be interested in and want to know about complex legal doctrines. Um, how can groups like local lawyers, chapters of the Federalist Society, uh, other advocacy groups that are engaged in making legal arguments um, better communicate with the media? Uh, or to put it another way, and what irritates you most uh, when dealing with these groups? What irritates me most is lawyers and law professors who can't speak English. Now, Professor Primus is obviously a, a, a notorious exception to that rule. But, you know, if I'm reporting on a story, uh, I'll just, the gun case is just fresh in my mind because I've been doing so many interviews on it. Um, it's funny how we work. Sometimes we are... Uh, rude bastards. Uh, sometimes we are adversarial. 
most of the time, the dirty little secret in our profession is that when we come to interview you, we're really rooting for you because we're giving you a little time of our story and we really want you to hit it out of the park. I, when I come to interview Professor Primus, I want him to come up with a nifty little bit of explanation of why this is such an important case. And the better he is, the better my story is. Uh, if he starts explaining it uh, by uh, beginning with a long, dry explanation of the doctrine of collateral estoppel, I'm sunk. Um, and so, so that's the first thing. I, 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 I go time after time to, to experts at, who can speak English and put things succinctly and intelligently and jam a lot of interesting little thought-provoking thingies into the precious 12 seconds I'm going to give them. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing that annoys me about lawyers is when they don't return my phone calls. Um, I reported a case uh, on a, a sort of a case, I guess you could say, that got a lot of attention last week of a claim that was filed with the federal court, the, the federal claims court that deals with uh, people who are seeking compensation for injuries from uh, getting vaccines. It's a special program that the Congress set up. And it's a very strange little practice that we don't cover very much, and it has its own weird little rules. And I was trying to reach one of the lawyers in the case, but he was going to do, be on Larry King that night, and so he wasn't <laughs> returning phone calls. Uh, and then finally, I think um, the, the better informed the journalists are, the, the better the odds are that they won't screw up the story. Um, you know, it's surprising how few reporters intentionally go and try to screw the story up. Uh, it's not a good career move. Uh, we, we, we are um, expected to do a good job and get it right and explain it better. And so that I think, frankly, any lawyer in a high-profile case has to assume that it's part of the job to answer reporters' questions, to talk to us, to explain things. It doesn't have to always be on camera. It doesn't have to always be on the record. But the, the smarter we are, the better we understand what you're going after, the better job we can do. And that, that's really what we want to try to do. All right. Thank you. Sir. Yes, I have a, yes, I have a question for uh, any on the panel. When the upcoming cases that's, that uh, Mr. Williams touched on a little bit is the D.C. versus Heller case, there hasn't been any precedent in... I think 70 years, um, with all the media attention to this case and the topic of originalism and the Second Amendment, um, how do you think the decision might be made in the public reaction from both the, I should say, the public and the uh, chattering classes, for lack of a better term, on the uh, professors and uh, the cocktail parties? How, what do you think is going to happen with that? <laughs> so I'll sorry, just give a question very, is what, what, what do you? Th I'm sorry. What do you think the decision is going, going to be, and, and what the reaction is going to be? I'll give you a That's very brief a better answer. way of phrasing it. <laughs> I'll give you a very brief answer. One, the Miller precedent is of almost no value. Both sides freely admit that. They try their best to say it really is good for us, but it's it's pretty uh, pointless. So, so this is going to be a great, you know, you talk about originalism and interpretivism. Man, it doesn't get more originalist than this. There is no way to decide this case without going back, reading the amendment itself, looking at the constitutional debates. What in the hell did the founders mean? And so it's, you know, this is originalism on a stick. Uh, <laughs> what, 
what do I think the court will do? My guess is that uh, they will find some way to say, however they say the second, whatever they say the Second Amendment means. There, I think I, I would be stunned if the district law survives. They're either going to say, uh, well, I think they're just going to say you just can't ban a whole class of guns, a whole class of handguns. I have no prediction about how it's going to come. Sorry. I have no prediction about how it's going to come out. Um, I do have a prediction about the reaction, which is that it will be entirely independent of the quality of the reasoning. Right? <laughs> um, and, that, and no matter how well Pete does his job, the reaction will be independent of the quality of the reasoning. Um, I, I want to briefly disagree with one thing that Pete says, which is that there's no way to decide the case other than through originalism. I mean, I could, there will be a lot of originalist talk in the decision, but of course there are ways to decide the case without originalism. Uh, and there are arguments for the, prop, I mean, several justices will reject this, but there are also arguments for the proposition that it ought to be decided without originalism. Right? Here are some ways to decide it without originalism. One, uh, you could read the language um, and see what you think the language does without ever opening a book about anything that happened before 1800. And even a lot of people... Uh, who think that they're being originalists are going to do that because what they do is they read the language and they decide what they think that means and then they imagine that before 1800 people thought that's what the language means and that becomes the original intention. Many people then open the books and read lots of things and pick out the bits from before 1800 that support that understanding of what it was, right? Two, a court could say, you know, we're not democratically elected. I mean, Justice Markman is. He wouldn't suffer from this, right? But uh, the Supreme Court might say, look, we're not democratically elected and we're not good policymakers. And frankly, we don't we have no clue what the Second Amendment means. So let's not make it mean something that shuts down the democratic process. Right. Let's let the people of the District of Columbia and the people of Wyoming and the people of all these other places make decisions locally based on what they understand and what their needs are about the issue. Right. And in other words, read it to mean as little as possible. Right. That's a way to decide cases. And there are clauses of the Constitution that are read that way. Generally, if you have the originalist impulse and lots of constitutional lawyers do. Right. Is this a case where I would expect that insult, that impulse to be gratified hugely? Justice Markman. Well, I think Morrison versus Olson, the independent counsel case, was, in my judgment, one of the best illustrations in which there was intelligent, thoughtful constitutional analysis on both sides of the argument, in which both the majority and the dissenting justice attempted to look at the words of the Constitution and give them meaning in terms of what the separation of powers compelled in that case. I hope this is a decision like that. I do respectfully disagree with uh, Mr. Williams that somehow this is more susceptible to an originalist uh, determination than any other interpretation of the Constitution. I don't. I think the standards that he suggested might be applied in this case are exactly the standards that ought to apply in any other case of constitutional or statutory interpretation. And I hope this is one of those cases. Sometimes both sides rise. Uh, other times they don't. My name is Becky Perry. My question is for Professor Primus. Um, earlier in your remarks, you commented that both the public and academics or judges are often guilty of liking both our preferred theory and our preferred result. Um, my question is whether you think this tendency or problem of, of instrumentalism is inevitably the result of the original, originalist impulse, as you put it, or simply a frequent temptation that can be resisted. Um, and, and if it is possible to consistently apply a preferred theory, regardless of the particular outcome, how do we encourage the public or the law school community to separate the two? So I think it's a great question, right? I think that um, 
first, I think in some sense the problem is general, right? People want what they want, and they have to learn to restrain themselves. Um, so one variable is how good is the decision maker at being self-critical, right? That, I think, is one of the most important skills of the judge, right? Have I really, really worked to see all the weaknesses in my own position? Um, and that's something that's very, very hard for people to do. And lawyers are not born better than other people at doing it. And really great lawyers, right, are lawyers who are good at doing it. I frequently say that if you have a really difficult case on a controversial issue, find a lawyer to argue it who doesn't believe that the cause is the cause on the side of the angels. Because that lawyer knows where the weaknesses are, right? And he'll anticipate them and he'll work out a better argument, right? Um, now, uh, some theories are uh, more dangerous, right? They lead us into greater temptation than other theories because some theories of interpretation are simply more capacious. They can be squared with more different kinds of results. Um, there's a spectrum, right? I do think that it's one of the most important skills that law students should learn and that judges should continually practice, right? It, you know, is to identify, is to really, really ask yourself, what's driving my conclusion here and is it the premises that I articulate? And a test that I think that lawyers and judges should always put them to is this test. What are the cases that I would have to decide in ways that I find deeply wrong? If there aren't cases that you think that under the law you would have to decide in ways that are deeply wrong, you probably don't have a consistent interpretive theory. You probably just choose results in cases a lot of the time. Uh, just Markman. Well, let me say, I think Professor Primus is right that uh, no contemporary judge or justice is quite as explicit as some of our past justices in indicating that I wish to do what I wish to do and the law isn't very much binding upon me because I want to reach the results that I want to reach. I don't think there are many judges who do talk that way, in part because I don't think there's very many judges who really feel committed to that position. I think they reject that position. It's a much more subtle debate, it seems to me, and I'd urge those of you, it appears that most of you fall in this category, those of you going to law school, as you read your opinions, to look at various textual clues that, at least in my judgment, suggest the differentiation between the interpretivist and the non-interpretivist, or however you want to describe the debate. I think the non-interpretivist will be much more liberal in their decisions in using words like ambiguity, and balancing and spirit and giving a narrow or liberal interpretation to the law, using legislative history, applying equity. That's not to say that these words are all verboten or should necessarily be viewed as suspect. But I think when you look at those view, you look at those terms and other terms like those, they at least give you a, a hint, a clue that you ought to look more aggressively at that opinion and decide for yourself whether or not that judge could have reached the same conclusion that he's reached on the basis of the language of the law or not. I would success, suggest that in a good many decisions, when you see those textual clues, they are subtle or nuanced communications that I couldn't reach this conclusion, but for the fact that I'm putting a bit of a thumb on the scale in my decision making. Okay. We got two more quick questions and then and even quicker responses. Go ahead. My name is Joshua Minix. I'd love if you could comment on uh, public relation effort, uh, efforts by parties involved in litigation, sort of the type of services provided by the Borks at the moment. 
the what? Uh, the Borks, Judge Bork and his son. Oh, they yeah. run the PR. Uh, it's a hot new area. I get I get uh, dozens of emails a week saying, um, uh, you know, Jupiter is near Mercury, and uh, we have a we have a lawyer on our staff, uh, you know, at our law firm, who's an expert on planetary alignments. If you're doing any interviews, uh, this is this is something that never used to happen. But law firms aggressively market their folks. Uh, what I find is, what I, you know, what I need to know is, well, what's he going to say? You know, uh, is he going to say it's a good thing, it's a bad thing? I mean, where is he going to fit into my story? Uh, and very often they can't tell me that. I mean, I, I need to know, okay, he's an expert, fine. Well, what does he say? What's he saying this time? Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's all right. I mean, I don't mind that. I'm always open to new ideas, new voices. Uh, um, and it just, it, it, it's not going to go away because law firms so aggressively market themselves in so many different ways. They want to get their people in the newspaper and on, on television. Last but not least. Um, hi, my name is Victoria Iani. I'm from Stanford Law School. I had a question for Professor Primus. Um, earlier in your remarks when you were um, responding to the idea of interpretivist, um, you seem to downplay the idea that one side could claim that kind of thing. Well, however, however they're deciding it judicially, they're interpreting something. So I'm wondering if you think that there are kind of, is it just, is it semantics then and what's trying to be described? Or do you see that there are two sides of um, judicial reasoning? And if you do, how would you describe them? It's deeply not semantic. Um, there are not two sides to judicial reasoning. There are about 26, right? Um, and uh, there are many, many, many different approaches. There is a traditional way, tradition, and here by traditional, I mean like uh, since the 60s. Right? It hasn't always been like this. There is a, a, but there's been a way of carving the world of judicial interpretation that it looks like this. One side follows the law, the other side makes things up. The problem is that judges, almost universally, do not have the experience of making things up. Judges have the experience of being constrained by rules. And judges too often think that the person who's constrained by different rules or looks to different kinds of inputs and principles as the law is making things up. So here's an example. Uh, I don't know if you've had federal courts or studied the 11th Amendment. The 11th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution uh, it has been a subject of tremendous, tremendous, tremendous controversy because one side of the debate thinks it means that I, as a resident of Michigan, can't sue Michigan. And the other side thinks it only means that I, as a resident of Michigan, can't sue Ohio. The language of the amendment is terribly clear on this. There's absolutely nothing in it that talks about me suing my own state. Right? It may surprise you to know that the side of the debate that usually is considered making things up right, is the one that reads the text. Right? So, sim and there are many, many examples like this. Right? If you read the Ninth Amendment and think there are unenumerated rights, you're following a rule. It's the rule in the Ninth Amendment. Right? If you read the Due Process Clause and think there's substantive due process, you're following a rule. It's the rule that says there's a tradition going back to the common law about what due process means, and it's part of it. Right? If you think that part of your job as a judge is to do equity, 
Well, that probably is also because you think that, there, that equity is part of the law, similarly. If you think that the, the judicial power has certain standing limitations, as Justice Markman does, he's following a rule. I don't think he's making it up, right? The debate is about which sources of authority are the law and which ones are outside the law. That is an important debate, but it is a simplification that does justice to no one to say that some of these sources of law, most of which are quite traditional, and even if they're traditional sources of controversy, are in fact not the law, and that's not interpreting the law. Each source has to be given reasons, and, and then you can explain whether your interpretation is a good one. But all of these people are interpreting the law. Okay. Well, can, can I, I, Justice Markman. Can I ask Professor Primus then if in his view it is at least a precondition of responsible and even-handed decision-making that a judge before the case articulates what the rules are that he's going to rely on? And I'm not talking about rules at, at such a general level that they provide no guidance as to how he's going to decide the next case, but I'm talking about a rule that in some rough sense enables a third party to say, this judge, by applying that rule, and because he's applied that rule, is probably going to come out this way in the next case. That's the rule of law as I see it. So it's a great question, and, answer, and I'd like to say yes. I'm a, I don't quite know what to do with the question about before. Right. When you say before he decides the case, he has to articulate the rule because, I mean, Holmes, right, not generally remembered as right, a like, crazy radical who made things up, right, said that it is the virtue of the common law to decide the case first and then to figure out the rationale afterwards. He didn't mean I'm just going to make things up and rationalize. He meant there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of different rules. And until I know which case I'm trying to decide, it's difficult to figure out which the most appropriate, what the most appropriate rule is. Now, having articulated a rule, you should then follow the rule in similarly situated cases. So I need to know what you mean by before. Well, I think it's clearly the case that in the common law, there is at least what can be argued as to be a quasi-legislative role that the state judges play. I mean, for better or worse, and I think, as we were discussing beforehand, I think it's very hard discerning the standards for applying the common law, but I think most judges who approach the common law understand that their responsibilities are different than when they're interpreting contracts and statutes and constitutional provisions. I think there's got to be some standard for some rule, some standard for giving some evidence as to how a judge is going to go in the next case. Otherwise, I don't know how somebody can look at the decision in the next case and but conclude that that decision may be a function not of the law, but of the predispositions of that judge toward the parties or the causes involved in the case. So I absolutely agree that judges should hold in case two to the rules and principles that they articulated in case one to the extent that those rules and principles are articulated in case two. And I think it would be difficult to find a lot of people who disagree with the proposition stated at that level of generality. Well, it can't be enough in case one to say I'm relying on legislative history because whatever's said in a Senate report really ought to be dispositive and influential concerning what that statute means. And then in the next case to say, well, I'm following a rule that we don't look to legislative history of that sort. Sure, you can follow rules in every case, but it seems to me it's the consistency of the application of those rules that determines whether or not a judge is acting within his proper purview. Now, I 
realize we're going to stop, conclude, just when it's getting good, but I'm sorry about that. But um, I'd like to thank everyone for coming to this session, and I'd like to thank <laughs> Justice Markman, Professor Primus, and Mr. Mitchell. Mr.